Welcome to our podcast. If you enjoy this segment, we encourage you to check out the others. Also, if you're new to Hedgeye, you qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to another Real Conversation. This one's going to be a, a, a do... A, you guys got me there? Yeah, okay, this one's going to be a dandy. I'm look, quite looking forward to this. I, I have my fellow Canadian... David Rosenberg on on the line. It's his first time having a real conversation with me. We're just back and forth on some uh, some good Canadian fodder. Welcome, welcome, David. Thanks for making the time. Well, it's uh, it's an honor and pleasure to be on with you. That's 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 a cool thing that, to hear from who I would in my work uh, would consider a Canadian legend on on the topics of economics. As you know, there it's not exactly a, a, a topic that has a bunch of legends running around in, in, in Thunder Bay, Ontario, or in Ottawa for that matter, but I know a lot of our audience on the Canadian side uh, was looking forward to this, and I certainly was too, so thanks for making that time. The, um, the, the, where I want to start, and, I, and, and I, I've been following you forever, um, you know, from back when I was on the buy side, uh, when you came to the U.S. side of Merrill Lynch in, I think it was in 2000, maybe 2001, if, if, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and, you, and it was the first time that I'd actually read something a little bit more personal from you. For those of you that haven't read it, it's up on uh, David's new website, and he's gone all independent with the research subscription model, which I highly approve of, obviously. Um, but you wrote a, a letter from the non-bearish chief economist. And it wasn't just you know, that that was kind of funny as a headline, but, but it, was a, it, was, it was really, um, an, it gave me a chance to, to say, wow, uh, this is who David actually is. And I didn't know that. So uh, one, I wanted to thank you for that. And two, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to know, like, does it, does it like kind of, because the tone of that was awesome, but does it piss you off that people label you as a perma bear? Well, you know, it, uh, I guess at some point you almost become uh, a little numb uh, because you've heard it for so long, but it's not, as I said on my piece, it really comes from people that don't know me, don't know my work. It's um, either they pay attention to the media or or hearsay. Uh, you know, uh, one of my most proud accomplishments, uh, you know, was taking uh, an economics team uh, in New York when I was at Merrill. When I started there in 2002, I was in Canada at Merrill before then. And I took a, an economics department that for decades was floundering. And by the time I left in 2009, you know, we were ranked uh, four years in a row in the top three in the II vote. And my last year, uh, we were ranked number two. And don't forget that for a, a lot of that time period, uh, we were in the wilderness on the call because we were early on the housing and mortgage crash. We saw it coming. We were just way ahead of the curve on it, maybe too far ahead of the curve. But we got ranked all those years because um, institutional investors liked our research. They paid for our research. They paid for the thought process, and they paid for all the ideas that we generated. And I guess the point I would just make is that there's always something to buy. I think people measure you, if you're bullish or bearish, based on one asset class, which is equities. Uh, people had no clue that in all that time period when I was not bullish on equities, I was bullish on gold, and I was bullish on long-term treasuries. Mm-hmm. And risk for reward, they've proven to be fantastic investments. So there's more ways to skin a cat. You know, I can understand that if you accuse somebody of just being clueless and ha- not having any ideas for you to invest your money, I could, I can understand that. But... Uh, I think people just somehow, you know, measure you on your call on the stock market. Uh, these people have no idea that the bond market writ large <laughs> is the larger asset class than the stock market is. But that doesn't matter. So the thing is that I've been actually a permable uh, on bonds, uh, you know, right right there with my good buddies, Lacey Hunt and Gary Schilling. Um, you know, we just need to get maybe a fourth for bridge, and uh, that would round out the number of bond bulls that have been out there in the past number of decades. But very bullish on bonds, uh, and in the past few years, I've been very bullish on gold. And there's been segments of the stock market that I've liked. I just didn't like, you know, the overall market. The stuff I liked I thought was overpriced. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that uh, uh, I wouldn't want to touch. And then there's some special ideas in between. But in any event, yeah, you know, a a long way to say um, that I guess, you know, it bothered me enough. I'm driving my son Michael home uh, as he picked up his stuff from university. And this is just a few weeks ago. He was cleaning out his uh, his house as I waited in our spick and span car, uh, and uh, got interviewed um, 
on the way back, and the first line was, uh, we're going to introduce the uh, famously bearish David Rosenberg. And when the interview finished, and we're driving along the 401 highway, my son Mikey looks at me and says, Geez, Dad, you don't seem very bearish to me. And uh, maybe it's a side of me he's never seen. But I just decided, you know what, time to set the record straight. Well, people, uh, and I'm sure your, your, son, your son realizes this, but if you've been long Golden Treasuries over even, and again, I think it's kind of demeaning to, to just call uh, the stock market just one thing. As, as you point out, there are plenty of sectors and factor exposures you can be long of. Even if you are bearish broadly on the stock market uh, or a big factor like small caps, something like that, something that's just been dreadful relative to gold over the same period. I mean, no wonder why you're happy driving with your son there, uh, you know, Dave. Your gold's up 47% over the same period that the Russell 2000, what we would call the full investing cycle top, uh, which was when the U.S. economy, of course, topped at the end of the third quarter. I mean, gold's up 47% absolute and the Russell's down 26. I mean, that's, that's why you should be happy. I mean, that, that, that's an awesome call. And um, that's, that's the other thing, and that's the second thing I want to ask you about. You know, the, the, so you go through this, this note, and you say, look, I just want to make calls. And having been on the buy side watching you, I mean, the distinct difference between this Canadian guy and these other guys and gals that do uh, econ that are in my inbox were that you make calls. I mean, you make real calls, and you weren't, like, completely wed to them. I think that's the other thing you said you know, uh, from a, from a, maybe it was marital advice. You said, marry your partner, not your forecast. <laughs> can you talk, can you talk about that? Like when you actually have a call uh, going against you and, and, and how you deal with that? I have to deal with that obviously all the time. Well, you know, it's, it's the benefit of uh, having spent so much of my life uh, with CIOs and with portfolio managers. And, and I always wanted to, um, you know, follow their rules in terms of discipline. Um, because, uh, the uh, you know we're all going to make mistakes. Uh, the question becomes then, if you do have a bad call, you know when do you basically say I'm wrong? I've got to move off this because it's one thing to be down, and then write it all the way down to the lows. And the same is true with your economic forecast. Uh, you know you just have to lay out um, you know just have to lay out your markers ahead of time, and uh, you almost have to formulate for each individual call uh, a form of a decision tree. Uh, and, you know, you certainly don't want to waffle if you have strong conviction. Um, at the same time, you have to balance that against not being stubborn. Uh, and you just have to wait for the accumulation uh, of evidence, um, you know, without getting too specific, that you've overstayed your welcome on this call or the thesis uh, isn't playing out. And um, the last thing you ever want to be is, is defensive. You know, if you have to admit that you're wrong, and that's the hardest thing I find among people in our industry, and especially among economists, is, is God forbid, admitting that you're wrong. Um, you know, uh, everybody will forgive you for being wrong because we're humans and we're going to make mistakes. Uh, I think the worst thing is to hide from a bad call, uh, to become overly defensive about a bad call. I think you have to come out and tell your investors or, you know, this is the call. This is why it went wrong. This is why my assumptions uh, didn't prove um, to fulfill the conclusion. Because, you know, you ask a couple of economists, you know, what are your forecasts? Everybody always says, how do you get these economists together? You all have different calls. Well, you know, your, your assumptions drive your conclusions. And so quite often it's just a faulty assumption. Uh, and so you go back to the drawing board, uh, you know, you tell your clients, uh, you know, this is this is plan B, uh, and uh, this is what I think is going to happen now. It's not what I thought was going to happen, but it's the next base case scenario, because you just don't have one scenario. You've got to have a few, but you do have your base case. Sometimes you have to leave one base case for another uh, and explain at the same time, you know, why you, won't, you won't, why you won't make the same mistake twice, because I have this rule that you're forgiven to make a mistake. Make sure it's not a sloppy mistake, uh, but don't make the same mistake twice. That's a no-no. Yeah, uh, so it's just a matter. Yeah, it's just a matter of just you know, it's just a matter of of, of, of having discipline. You know, I I, I I am an economist. I'm a market economist, but I was groomed and mentored by so many great people, and, and I learned early when I was formulating an economic opinion to attach a market call to it. Yeah. And so that's, I guess that's ultimately what set me apart from the traditional economists, was willing to actually say, here's how we're going to connect these macroeconomic data points 
and formulate a cogent and coherent and cohesive uh, investment strategy out of it. Yeah, and that that part of it, I mean, that last part in particular, and that's really, I was checking out your uh, your new website and everything else, and it, it's really just bringing it daily helps you, David. I, I think that that's, for me at least, you know, I can just openly talk and be self-effacing about any mistake I might have. Obviously, every single day, if you're if you're trying to evaluate that on a daily basis, you'll go right crazy. But what it does allow is a communication platform for that. So you're like early morning with Dave Note. I mean, I'd read that you know forever, but now that's you know, there's certain people that people will pay for if you put it behind the paywall, and there's certain people that they will be completely indifferent. And and I and I think that that's a you know, I think that that's more uh, more obvious today than it's ever been. Is that, is that something behind like what got you to just get up and do it? Is that you knew people would pay for it? Obviously, you have a pretty big distribution. Yeah, well, you know, you know what happened was that uh, when I left uh, Merrill in New York and came back home in 2009, and I went to Glasgow and Shep, and I had been doing this daily, like like this this daily that had taken on different monikers. I think the the, the first the first time I started doing it in 1998. <laughs> I think a lot of your listeners weren't even alive then. Um, you know, it was called, I think, Rosie's AM Tidbits. And then it, yeah. I moved to Merrill, it became, uh, it became uh, it, you know, uh, the mor- morning notes, morning market memo. Uh, so I've been doing this daily. I was doing this daily before people were doing dailies. And uh, I remember, <laughs> and I was just, we were all just trying to figure out the internet at that point. This is 1998, it was at the Bank of Montreal, and it was the brainchild, actually, of the person who was going to become the CEO of the Bank of Montreal years later, uh, named Bill Down. And what he had, wanted me to do was to get my morning meetings, I used to do the morning meetings, um, you know, for the fixed income guys and the equity people and the retail people. He says, get, get your morning notes on paper so we can market it. And that was an inflection point in my professional life because it gave me instant notoriety to be able to actually almost be like William Sapphire for people that remember him, you know, in the New York Times, to actually have your own daily. Yeah. Well, I realized, and wherever I left, uh, went, went to, um, left there for Merrill Canada, then went to Merrill U.S., and I, I took the daily wherever I went, it became a part of me. Uh, I, I was only found out when I was leaving Merrill in 09 that my daily was the most widely read piece of research, uh, coming out of, uh, Merrill at the time, which totally blew me away. And uh, so I brought the format. I brought, uh, and we ended up calling it Breakfast with Dave at that point to give it something a little more personal when I got to Klusk and Chef. And, um, and so uh, we decided that, you know, wh- why don't we see if this could uh, pay for itself? Right. And so it was a mutual decision between me and the senior management at Klusk and Chef. Um, you know, I was actually, when I was making the transition back to Toronto, there were some people that wanted to... Um, uh, back me, backstop me, and, and start my own company then in '09. I just wasn't wasn't ready, but it hit my it hit me then that maybe I could actually do this. But I thought, you know what? Um, there's still I, there's still stuff for me to learn, uh, and I had a chance to go from the sell side to the buy side, where I could really figure out what makes institutional investors tick. And that was the beauty about going to Gluskin Chef those years was really, you know, being right there on the investment team. Uh, helping them, uh, you know, not just our clients, but also our investment team. I always thought our investment team was the most important client of all, since you're the ones that were generating the returns. Um, so we decided, you know, we're going to stress test this, and we went to the paywall, and, and it worked. And I split the proceeds with Glusskin Chef. And, uh, and so basically, um, you know, by 2019, I just figured, you know, uh, I'm pushing 60, uh, you know, it's been a nice run working for big companies my whole life. And, you know, at the time, what's interesting is that when I was at Gluskin, of course, I've got access to all the sell-side research on Wall Street and Bay Street. And and I used to be part of that when I was at Merrill. Uh, but it really hit me as a consumer of all this information, yeah. how economics had become a commodity. Everybody sounds the same. And uh, I thought, you know what, uh, I, I've always had a unique approach. I always told the troops when I was at Merrill that there are going to be times when uh, we're going to be viewed as being wrong, and we're going to have to suffer that. Um, 
but we have to put out great, innovative, unique research. We have to be the economics team that people have to read, that even we're on a losing streak on our forecast, the research is so great that that'll just be enough on its own. And so we cannot be a commodity. We have to provide something unique, differentiated, and that makes a difference and comes to a conclusion. And so, uh, you know, that's the ethos that I've always brought. And I realized that there was a real going independent at this stage just made so much sense because I just felt there was a void to fill in terms of unbiased, raw, uh, unique lens of the world as it pertains to politics, as it pertains to finance and economics. And so that's what I tried to do in this, starting at, at this point, just made sense from a resource perspective. Uh, I don't need anybody's financial help to do this. And um, an age perspective. But also, uh, I just thought, you know, I, there's a void here to be filled. Yeah. And uh, for better or for worse, I'm going to fill that void. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, I mean, the timing was obviously uh, perfect. And, and, and while you were, you know, making that economic call pre-virus, which is what I want to spend some time on next, I really wanted to spend the first 10 to 15 minutes with somebody that's never been on Hedge Eye TV. I want, to, I want people to understand who the person is and what their process is. Because if they don't know who you are, they're not going to, you know, implement you into their process. And that's really what you're selling. Like when you're doing a daily, when you're doing a daily, whether it be economics or macro strategy or technicals, fully loaded, you do all that. Um, you, you need to make the case that you are going to be part of somebody's process. Now that can be an individual, it can be obviously a CIO. But again, if you can make that case, that's actually the whole point about being daily, and that's what I quite like about um, uh, this idea that that you've gone it alone. I mean, that that was just a matter of time. Um, let's just get into some topics on that. Um, so one the one that I get because I get pressed on these things that we probably have the same clients now, um, but I get pressed on this damn you know letter of the alphabet debate, and I know you have your your answer at least what you think it is right now in terms of uh, whether or not we have a recovery at all. Let's just start with that. But can can, can you just uh, take your first crack at that? Well. I we are going to have a recovery, um, that's for sure. And you're quite right. What does it look like? And I'd say that, uh, well, the first thing is that anybody who thinks that they got that question answered 100%, uh, well, that's the person I think that I'd want to, I'd want to fade. Uh, I, I think that, um, look, lots of excitement today, obviously, um, uh, on the medical front, but well, you vaccine know, we, we, equals V. At least there's some linear. Uh, that's right. If that vaccine is a V-shaped recovery. Uh, it'd be the fastest vaccine of all time if it comes by the end of the year. I mean, you, usually vaccines at best take four years. But you know, let's 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 be hopeful. Although I never found hope to be a particularly useful strategy. Um, but today's action actually reminds me. This is the same action we got on April 17th with Gilead. Uh, if you remember, the yep. market surged uh, 2%, bond yields went up, gold sold off, and then and then two days later, everybody forgot about it. Uh, I, you know, I, I'd like to believe that a vaccine's around the corner, and, and I'll be the first one to say that um, that if a vaccine or even an effective treatment uh, would be a, a game changer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just very hard to handicap that timing. What, what I will say is this. I'll say that... Um, we're bringing back the production side of the economy. Uh, various states, growing number of states, even California, is now uh, going to be 75% open. But the reality is that you can bring back the production side of the economy, but nothing comes back without demand. And uh, I find it very difficult to believe that until uh, people feel confident uh, that they're not going to get this illness, uh, the demand side is not coming back, not coming back much at all. Uh, and uh, it remains to be seen how many businesses are going to still be open after they reopen if they're only operating at 50% capacity. You know, the beauty of this is that, you know, we, do, we have actually China uh, as a template. And, uh, you know, we already have the May data or the at least the uh, April data in uh, in China. And industrial production is back being positive year over year by call it three percent um but retail sales are still down more than seven percent year over year the sales side is lagged woefully behind uh the production side and that's not sustainable yeah so my sense is that um you know we have a really deep hole right now i mean i i I don't know if anybody has seen the uh, the atlanta fetch gdp numbers nobody talks about those anymore 
you know that they're for the second quarter, uh, the Atlanta Fed's at, at negative 42.8% for Q2. Just a week ago, it was minus 35. I mean, these are mind-numbing numbers, right? Uh, we, we, we've never seen these. Uh, I don't think we even had numbers like these in the Great Depression. In fact, we got the industrial production numbers on Friday, I mean, down 11%. Uh, we got data back to 1921. We've never seen a month that bad for industrial production. So we have a gigantic hole that we're climbing out of, a huge detonation uh, to domestic demand that near-term is deflationary. Uh, we can debate what it's going to look like years down the road because the supply curve gets affected by this as well. Um, but I think that we're going to get, of course, we're going to get some sort of what you would call a dead cap bounce in the third quarter. There's no doubt about that. Um, then the question is going to be, what does life look like beyond the third quarter? And I think it's going to be a real go-slow uh, recovery with possible setbacks. Uh, I think, as Jay Powell had mentioned, you know, reopening the economy doesn't come without risks. And uh, I think it stands to reason that we will get a second wave. Uh, the question with the second wave is, will it overwhelm the hospital system? That was the concern all along. Uh, so it's going to be a series, I think, as I, I think of, I'm thinking of the letter, and the letter, it seems to me, is just a, a re recurring small-cap Ws for uh, at least until such time as we get a, a vaccine. That's what I see happening. We get the initial shock down, and it's going to be a very tepid and muted recovery thereafter. Yeah, that that um, one I agree with. Some people were you know, complaining that we were going to agree too much. But, I mean, I don't know how else you could come up with. If you have to give a, an institutional client, that's for sure, an answer to the question that they ask you, uh, and they want a letter. I mean, I keep saying you're going to get hacked up by a bunch of W's. Could be a you know a series of them. You know, that could be intraday at this point, given people's. Um, and I want to get to that, the bubbliness of it all, and and it's um, it's obvious, at least to me, it's return on the, on the market. But just to finish up on this, you know, for me, the, the the labor markets, you get new data every Thursday with jobless claims. Obviously, we wait until the end of the month to get the summary of that. But there's a series of lags on that. Every every one of these that I've risk managed through. Thursday's the day, right? So Thursday's the day where I can, look, as a bean counter, I'm either going to be proven wrong or I'm going to be proven more right. I mean, to, to your point, I, I cannot believe these numbers. I mean, and, and there's no model I could put them in, obviously, that goes back any cycle. And I wonder if that's just it. Like, if the, if the, if the permanence to job loss uh, is something that you have any uh, higher confidence interval in, like you said, you can't, there, anyone who says they're 100% certain is completely full of shit. But I mean, when, when we talk about confidence intervals, how, do you have any confidence interval on the permanence of job loss as opposed to what many have hoped, and hope again is not a response process, but many have hoped uh, has been temporary? Well, you know, uh, the, the answer to that is um, I do have a certain level of, of confidence about that. And um, and the information that we got, for example, uh, out of the last two employment reports, uh, you know, I continue to hear over and over again from the bulls uh, that over these past two months uh, that uh, close to 80% of the job losses were people who told the BLS that their employment loss was only temporary. Now, maybe it's wishful thinking, maybe it's true. Let's assume that they're correct, as if anybody really knows. But nobody seems to grasp uh, what the 20% of the carnage so far has been permanent. And uh, we're talking big numbers here. I mean, this would mean that 5 million jobs aren't coming back. Uh, that's more than two years of job creation uh, right there that's gone for good. And that could be even underestimating the situation because uh, I saw a survey uh, cited on uh, Real Clear Politics a couple of weeks ago was a survey by the Society for Human Resource Management, and it actually found that 52% of small businesses uh, expect to fail in the next six months. And actually, if you go to the Fed's uh, stability report uh, that it published on Friday, there might be uh, a lot of credence uh, to that view about how many companies, especially small companies, just aren't going to make it. And so then all of a sudden, you're not talking just about 5 million jobs not coming back. You're talking about more than 10 million jobs not coming back. Yeah, that'd be huge. And, yeah, wow. and, and that's the one thing. Like, when, 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 again, when you, when you look 
beneath the veneer and you're and you're taking a look for example at the uh at the household survey uh as the companion to uh the payroll survey uh that came out a couple of weeks ago you know the the labor force participation rate went from 62.7 percent in march to 60.2 percent in april that's the lowest it's been since february 1972 but really caught my eye and this comes down to your question about the permanency is that uh the number of people you know who didn't even bother to get classified uh as unemployed but actually went from employment to outside the labor force altogether right that number skyrocketed by 3.6 million that is off the charts the only other time in history that we ever saw a number close to that was was 1 million people disengaging like that in one single month this was 3.6 million so this is what we're talking about here and is about the the permanency uh of um of the job losses you know right now we're just living in the moment we're in early, the early chapters whether or not this is a man-made recession or not that this was not done by malfeasance or you know I, i've got to say by the way the fact that jay powell has the temerity to say that there was no bubble <laughs> and, and yet and yes and yet i mean i mean you look you're looking at at, at corporate debt to normalize by any measures it was so clear there was a bubble in on the corporate balance sheet it was the biggest debt for equity swap on record uh but okay the the the, the reality is that we have a, a situation where uh a, a health tragedy morphed into an economic tragedy uh and i really don't know keep anybody talking about the extent to which this is going to become a financial tragedy was anybody talking about even when we were talking about the the lockdowns at the beginning was anybody talking about that the fed would be uh actually uh expanding its balance sheet at twice the rate it was in the great financial crisis that this would actually be multiples bigger than after lehman and and uh aig collapsed who would have ever thought and it just goes to show uh how leveraged the economy was well, that, uh, the, that, the imbalances that theme i mean you can't explain i i mean you you have to i i feel like i constantly and twitter is good for that i have to simplify the complex with um you know easier ways for for more humans to understand like things like gravity um like economic gravity but <laughs> you know so you can go aristotle versus newton on them and then all of a sudden they'll say oh wow the earth isn't the center of the universe um but you you end up you, you end up with like a pretty basic way to this 08 was was leverage on banks and mortgages now it's their clients and you've said that multiple times on twitter Uh, in fact I think I bored it from you uh multiple times. So you know people's ability to understand that debt bubble I think was a tough one because they weren't preconditioned pre-virus to know that they were in one. And that's the other thing. Um you know uh you guys can put up slide uh, 79 by the way what um uh, what what Dave said uh, we have a chart on that from from AARP just to show that 55% of small businesses in the US at least on their on their survey would go kaput uh, within 1 to 3 months. So, you know, th- th- this is this is more to me, Dave, and I wonder if th- if you agree with this uh quite simply uh or not. I mean, is this a solvency problem at at this point at the corporate level and is that what I just need to keep focus that's essentially what I'm trying to focus on. Are corporates going to um remain insolvent? Are we going to go through a workout period in a bankruptcy cycle or are they magically going to rehire everybody and be profitable again? Like I I can't get to because again to get more to to not have permanence in the jobs market you got to have cash flows and the cash flows hire people. Well, I look I think that um it's very clear to me uh that a uh, the next stage is going to be the fallout uh on insolvency and on bankruptcy uh and on delinquencies. And uh you know in some sense uh you know when people talk to me about uh you know the stock market uh you know they're saying to me, what is the stock market uh, what's the stock market uh uh not seeing that you see and uh you know we have a real bifurcated market out there it's it's still a self bear market even today um you have three sectors uh big tech biotech pharma and the grocery chains um and they've gone back close to their highs and then you have the other 70% of the market uh that's uh still down more than 
and that would include the financials. Uh, but what does it mean to somebody out there who's looking at the next stage of this saga uh, on insolvency as to why the regional banks are down more than 40%? And in fact, I would say that what is really disturbing um, over the course of just the past month or so uh, is how, uh, you know, what I call, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the missed payment um, segment of the stock market uh, has seriously rolled over. Uh, the utilities, yeah. uh, the REITs, and not just uh, the office REITs, but the entire REIT sector, uh, and, um, uh, and telecom uh, have all rolled over significantly. And, and that's a signpost to me uh, that the market beneath the veneer is telling you something uh, about um, either debt service or mispayment um, uh, uh, part of the cycle is on its way or it's already here. And you can always see that in the mortgage forbearance numbers. It's already starting. Uh, you know, you, you, you'd have thought that the high-yield market, especially after the Fed announced the day before, <laughs> you know, the day before uh, Good Friday that they were going to move into the high-yield space, but even, the, you know, high-yield spreads, um, and I think they're coming in today, but on Friday's close, high-yield spreads are basically the improvement that totally petered out over the course of the past four to six weeks. Yeah. You know, we have high-yield high spreads right now, and this is going to put your question into focus uh, as to what is the market telling us. High-yield spreads. Are, are off their worst level, absolutely, but, you know, liquidity dried up everywhere, even in Treasury. Now, here we are, uh, in or past the eye of the storm, all the fiscal and monetary policy stimulus and the Fed telling you we're backstopping the junk bond market or aspects of the junk bond market. So we closed on Friday at 768 basis points on high-yield spreads. That is the exact same level we had in January 2008, which was the first month of a 19-month-long recession that, like this one, nobody ever thought could last that long. And it's the same spread that took hold in March 2001, which, once again, was the first month of a 10-month-long recession. So what I'm saying is, what is the high-yield market telling you? Well, in hindsight, that was the spread you had on month one of a long-term workout. Yep. That saw lots of players go down for the count in the months and quarters that followed. So there is no disconnect here really between the market's views and my views that we're going to go into the next destabilizing wave of insolvencies and bankruptcies. And it's a question really of just how bad it's going to be. Well, that, uh, guys, in slide 96, just so that people have a picture of high-yield spreads. And, like, to your point at the beginning of this conversation, uh, David, you know, unfortunately, people have, have had the stock market emblazoned in them on CNBC or whatever else is the only market. But if you obviously have studied you know, the global macro market and the U.S. high-yield market in particular, you can see on this chart that it actually looks like a chart of the VIX with lower amplitude when there was less leverage back in 2000. 2001 and into 02, but what you note there is that, and if you guys flip back to slide 94, which is the VIX, the period, the, the workout period, the last time we had corporate leverage at this percentage of GDP was, you know, was a long time, relatively speaking, to what most people would have thought. That's when, ironically enough, that's that's when you, you came to the U.S. as a, as a chief strategist economist, but that's a period of chronic, uh, I call it chronic equity market volatility and chronic high yield spreads wide, you know, so like, I can't for the life of me understand how, how the Fed is going to um, arrest economic gravity and bring those spreads in if they haven't been able to yet. Uh, and I don't know if there are a lot of people who manage money successfully between 2000 and 2002 anyway. And thirdly, the, that economic decline was 0.3%, peak to trough. Well, you know, I, you know they, say, uh, they say don't fight the Fed, and um, that's a common bullish refrain. But uh, you're 100% right. You know, the, the reality is that I mentioned where high-yield spreads closed Friday, that they were at the exact same level on the first month of multi-month recessions in 01 and in 08. And uh, the Fed kept on cutting rates. Look at the chart of the funds rate and the stock market through 2008, uh, actually fighting the Fed more 
actually paid off, and the same happened in 01. At some point, things will bottom out. Uh, I'm not so sure they bottom out because of the Fed. Uh, what is the Fed? The Fed really is a is a major liquidity backstop. Um, mm-hmm. But that's you know that that's exactly what it is. I, I mean, the Fed the Fed did not put the lows in in March of 09. That was not about the Fed. That was about the Treasury and Congress coming to an agreement on TARP 2 since TARP 1 failed. And TARP 1 failed and then you had another 30% down leg. It's when they ring-fenced the banks, recapitalized the banks uh, in March of 09. That was the low. The low was not about the Fed. And so, uh, well, certainly can Congress or Treasury, uh, can they have an influence on insolvencies through fiscal policy or regulatory policy? Well, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and they had that choice back in March of 09 because they could have let the banks go or nationalize them, and they didn't go that route. Um, but this is, you know, people that talk about, about the Fed, you know, this is basically, this, this, look, ultimately demand is the key. I don't think that there's an interest rate out there I mean, interest rates are already close to zero. There's no interest rate out there that's going to cause people to go out and buy a new car or a new home. Okay? This is not like – that, that those are the old cycles. Those are the old business cycle recessions. This is not about, well, we've got to ease monetary policy to stimulate demand. Um, the Fed will do everything it can to um, provide liquidity and lending functions almost as a bridge. It's not going to be able to solve all the – problems that are out there and we went into this situation sadly enough you know we weren't prepared from a healthcare perspective that's clear enough but we weren't prepared from a financial perspective either i mean it's not just the corporate sector that was up to its eyeballs in debt and the most spurious debt in terms of quality but i was stunned to look at surveys and see that over half of the american public i'm talking about households over half did not have enough liquidity or cash on hand to get by for three months. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, well, because we were told by the president that it was the biggest jobs boom of all time. <laughs> Best economy of all time, 3.5% unemployment rate. And so how could it be that uh, with all that job growth and all that income generation, now maybe the distribution of the income is a bit of a problem as we know, but it is astounding that over half of the American public didn't have enough cash on hand to survive three months of no cash flow. That's well, if, striking. If they uh, maybe maybe they had a little little extra scratch, Dave, and uh, they read the president of the United States tweets at the end of the year, you know, chastising you as a, basically an idiot to not buy stocks, and then you lost it all anyway by by the March low. So I mean, there's so many components to this. Um, I'm starting to think of it like double bubble. You know the is in the gum, but I mean, the, you have a you have a bubble in corporate credit and procyclical behavior, super late cycle procyclical behavior, levering up to buy back your airline stock, pay yourself your bonus, like that disgusting type of behavior, which is again, this is what corporates do, and, and, and then the other side, which is the you know, the the profitless company bubble. All these people, all these bubbles, these two bubbles in particular, have one thing in common: they employed a full employment, max employment. You know, a, a level of the people. <laughs> so I can't, and, and I still don't get the, the the bubble part just being still, oh, it's just about the virus, fix the virus, get me a vaccine, we're good. We're coming out, do you agree with that? Are we coming out of a double bubble? We're at the 2000 uh, tech bubble uh, or whatever, this version of it, and the corporate side. Yeah, I, I think actually I would even count three. <laughs> uh, three. Well, uh, you know, because. There's probably well, like 10. <laughs> Well, because I think you've got to go back to, you know, I think you've got to go back to when the, when, when the term Greenspan put uh, first came into the uh, uh, financial market vernacular. And uh, that was after the 87 crash, which was my first day as a street economist, October 1987. That's brutal. And, 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 and look, it was a, a liquidity spasm, obviously a 23% decline in one day. Doesn't happen all the time, thankfully, for that. But, you know, Greenspan just kept on pumping the system with liquidity well into 1988 when it was very clear that the economy was booming. Um, and if you actually go back and read the transcripts from the opening months of 1988, uh, all Greenspan talked about 
in the transcripts was about the necessity of having insurance for the stock market. Next thing you know, next thing you know, we have a bubble in commercial real estate, LBO finance, savings and loans, and then we have that implosion in 1990 and 91. And so that was the first taste. And then we had the dot coms, the second taste. And then of course we had the mortgages and housing, and now this corporate debt bubble. So this goes all the way back to the late 80s. And, and so, you know, these are not the business cycles that uh, when I went to school in the classic textbooks, these have become cycles, and we don't seem to learn our lessons, but these become cycles not of productivity and not of capital formation, but these are cycles, one after the other, uh, for over 30 years of debt accumulation and asset inflation. And um, and I don't know this time around if we really hit the wall. What really amazes me is how ill-prepared we were, not just from a, uh, a medical standpoint uh, and the mistakes that were made thereafter, but you know, you're just stunned at the lack of balance sheet quality at every level of society. The fact that um, that this had to turn into a financial nightmare uh, that's what actually, I, I mean, I, I don't know, if I were to tell you we're going to have a pandemic, we're going to lock down the economy uh, for a couple, would you have to be able to tell me, Keith, oh yeah, and guess what, the Fed's going to end up buying high yield. <laughs> it's, I, 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 I just got off a call with a, a big institutional client before our conversation, and I said, if, if, I, if I'm right on this, and it's going to be death by 5,000 W cuts in terms of the recovery and not, then the Fed, I wouldn't be surprised if they're buying stocks before the election or if they're, they're tempted to do so. What else could they do? Well, look, the, um, you know, we'll see the extent to uh, which it ends up working. I mean, the Bank of Japan uh, started buying equity ETFs all the way back to uh, uh, April 2013. Right. And um, as far as I know, the uh, the Nikkei is still 50% lower today than it was at its, at its prior peak. Well, I so, guess uh, that part of that, like that, you know, and, and you mentioned the don't fight the Fed, which I think is a, a royally lazy uh, shortcut for people that talk about the Dow and points. And by the way, uh, we're going to get to your questions. The first question has to do with that. Um, but, you know, like I always say, front run the Fed. Forget this one-liner. You know, I'm, I'm in line with the Fed. You and I were in line with the Fed when they're buying $75 billion in treasuries a day. But we front ran them and that behavior. So, again, if you can, you know, if the next, the Fed only comes in with the next, le, you know, next round of don't fight the Fed liquidity after the shit, the shit hits the fan. So wouldn't that make sense? If they have nothing left, not, let's just park the fact that it didn't work in Japan. Like, what will the Fed do next other than just take up their bond buying again to $75 billion a day and buy stocks? I mean, there's, well, there's um, not much more they can actually buy. I mean, I, I was saying that, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, I, I was saying at some point that, you know, back, back when the oil price was negative, uh, I was uh, I was saying, boy, I wonder if they're going to add, you know, barrels of oil to their repository on their balance sheet, or right. maybe they'll add empty mall space or office towers to their balance sheet. Being facetious, of course. Uh, look, you know, Dave Powell over the weekend uh, said that we our balance sheet is unlimited, uh, and uh, we are far from done. And so I think that you know, even before you know the the vaccine excitement today. Uh, Dow futures are already up close to 300 points because of Powell, because if you have the central banker telling you uh, we've already come in the backstop fallen angels, we're actually going to buy high-yield ETFs, uh, and, um, and then he says, oh, and we're not done. And then you start thinking, well, you know, boy, you know, the high-yield market and the capital structure resides right next to the equity market, so guess what he's going to buy next? <laughs> It's amazing. And, and that sucks. You know, you, we're seeing epic levels. Of, it's too bad you're not back at, um, at, at the thundering herd, you know, where you had all the retail brokers back in the 2000 bubble. Um, 
now you have Robinhood accounts. I mean, and people that are sitting at home just buying stocks without having to pay commission. I mean, this is this is growing. You know, the bubble's got multiple uh, multiple bubbles uh, when it comes to that. And you, you know, now that you're on Twitter, I guess I don't know if you want it to be, but now now that you have the business model that you have, you, sh you obviously should be, and you do a great job with it. Uh, but you can just see the fervor and the FOMO there, David. I mean, to me, I, I don't know how else to explain this type of behavior other than just absolute epic bubble. Well, look, it's a, uh, I mean, you look at any of these FANG stocks for the most part and uh, look, at their, look at their market cap <laughs> and then look at their EBITDA and you do the arithmetic. And, uh, you know, uh, it's a, uh, yeah, I think that there are, uh, it's a, like I said, a very bifurcated market, uh, but there is still lots of pain underneath the surface. Yeah. Uh, and as, as I said, there's no there's no such thing as a a new fundamental bear uh, bull market. You know, when uh, when the financials are down more than thirty percent and the transports are still down more than twenty percent, but uh, and but I would say that um, you have had quite a bit of pain already. I mean, uh, uh, high yield spreads are no longer. Uh, you know, uh, 500 basis points. They're now closer to 800, even after everything that's happened. Um, there's still a very important signal, especially for economists to predict the future. Lot, lots of signal in there about what's coming down the pipe. I'll just say right now that what has me most unnerved, frankly, is everybody who's focuses on what's the S&P doing. Okay, look, if you want to go buy the spiders, go buy the spiders. You know, you want to buy the QQQs, buy the QQQs. I'm always looking at the information embedded inside the index, and uh, I'm a little unnerved by the action we've seen in utilities, telecom, and, and, and all the REITs yeah. now, uh, because that is at the heart of of the payments problem that we're going to be seeing. And a payments problem, because don't forget, you know, somebody, somebody's uh, expense on rent or utilities or your telecom bill is somebody else's income. Yep. Well, that means to, to put, I mean, to be long of financial leverage at any level. I mean, to your point last week, REITs were, REITs as a sector were down over 8%, taking their three month crash to down 31%. So obviously like people look at these, and this is the first question by the way, and, I'm, and they're a little apoplectic on days like today, um, which you know, the first question is like, Dave, with, a, with a 800 point Dow rally, of course the question's being asked in Dow points, is it different this time? You know, to have a rally like this, you had to have had the things go down that much. And like you said, the transports are leading today. I mean, you know, they'd been crushed. So. Part of that, too, is just classic bear market thrashing, is it not? It's just noise. I, I mean, I would have got the same question on uh, on April the 17th with uh, Gilead Sciences and uh, Remdesivir. And if you remember that, the big rapid recovery in their trials and the stock market ripped 3% that day, bonds sold off, gold got hit, and the S&P 500 on the... Gilead Science, big run-up day, April 17th. The close on the S&P was 28.74. Well, guess what? We, we Friday's close was 28.64. <laughs> so, yeah, look, it's a, uh, we're desperate for good news. Uh, I'm going to say today's news, you know, who can deny that it wasn't good news? I mean, is it, uh, is it something I would chase? No. Yeah. But the thing is that, you know, these sorts of markets, the volatility runs in both directions. The number of plus or minus 1% days in the S&P and the Dow and the number of 2% up and down days in the Dow in the past three months, um, we have not seen uh, since uh, the early 1930s. Yeah. So this is still all symptomatic of a, uh, of a bear market rally. Mm -hmm. This is all basically, and it's a long cycle, and we're really in, in, in Bob Farrell's rule number eight, you know, that, that, that we have three cycles within a cycle, and we have the sharp leg down, which we had, and then we have the reflexive rebound, which we're still in. Yep. And then we have the long, drawn-out downtrend to the fundamental lows. And every single bull market that I ever knew had its pullbacks along the way, just like we had a big one in December 2018. Well, guess what? Every bear market has its bear market rally. And these are rallies you want to rent 
They are not rallies that you want to own. And people say to me all the time, well, you know, nobody can time the market. Everybody says to me, uh, you know, have we bottomed? Did we hit the bottom? Uh, my line hasn't changed. Leave the bottom picking to the proctologist. <laughs> The rest, the rest of us should just be risk managers. And I try to tell people, you know, let the markets do the talking for us, okay? I, we still have to have the retest. It's got to be successful. Look, um, we had a uh, successful retest, I remember, in, in, in March of 03 after we had the big decline in October of 02. And, and you know, I'll be the first to tell you that, you know, um, I, I, I basically want my clients to sleep at night better safe than sorry. And the reality is, if you look out over time, you'll see that if you, God forbid, miss out on the first year of a bull market, let's say, let's be charitable, Keith, and say the bulls are right. We're now into a whole new bull market. I don't think that for a second, but let's assume that that's correct. If you look over all the bull market cycles in the past eight decades, you'll find that if you just basically set out the first year, you lost at an average annual rate your cost was two percentage points. If you played the rest of the bull market, you missed the first year, you're up 14% on average per year. Whereas if you were a brilliant market timer, and nobody I know is that brilliant, you're up 16%. Mm -hmm. That's a small price to pay two percentage points per year. Now I admit it, you know, you want to compound that. But the thing is that it's an insurance policy because the last thing you want to do is be caught in the third wave of the Bob Farrell rule number eight. So small price to pay to uh, just make sure yeah, and that I and if, I it's think a, if it's a bull market, it's got real legs. And that's, um, you know, that's a lesson that you know, is taught through the lens of either studying history or risk managing to your point through it, which you've done. Uh, I've did, this is my third one, so at least I have some, you know, at 45 years old, this isn't my first rodeo, but for an entire generation, they're losing their first job, that's their first rodeo as millennials, and also trading this kind of a market. So I do think that, that it's interesting to watch the, um, that's, that's the thing about the first phase of, of a developing bear market, is that there's such a rush to call the bottom. I mean, that's, it's, you don't need to be rushed. You can take your time. It's like the story of the old bull and the young bull. I don't want to go through that, but I like to be the old bull. You take your time and take care of your business that way. Uh, Gilead's a good example, by the way. I just called that up just because it's a, a good point, obviously, that you make. I mean, well, wh who cares about that narrative anymore, David? The, you know, that day, Gilead was at 85 or 86, and now it's at like 75. We got to go to the Moderna story. That one's got to be better. You know, so it's, it's, it's really fleeting, even if you look at the components of what drove it that day. Um, but, you know, the, the, the one thing that I, w I definitely struggle with when clients say, well, how do you know there's not going to be a vaccine? I mean, like, my entire process doesn't hinge on that. That's like a lottery ticket. Um, but it is, it, it's one thing that you, you could be quite you know, fearful of as a bear. There's no doubt about it. Look, I, I think that we have to be prepared that, um, you know, look, it, all, all the big biotech companies are working on this thing. Uh, and I think that uh, there's a, you know, very good chance that us as market participants are going to be seeing dozens of these kind of headlines uh, in the months ahead. Uh, you know, do I think that, you know, by rote or by some miracle, we're going to have a vaccine uh, for the end of this year, early next year? I'm not going to say it's 0% chance, but you've got to understand that if that's your view, it's never been done before. <laughs> most of the time, I mean, most of the time we don't even come up with a vaccine. And, and most of the time when we do have a vaccine, it takes four years. Mm -hmm. So, but, it, it, but it, look, it, it's a legitimate um uh, question to ask because uh, none of us really know. Uh, I don't claim to be uh, an infectious disease specialist. I do know, though, that um, if a vaccine comes to the fore and it's effective and it's deliverable, um, it's a massive game changer. But that's what it's going to take. You know, that's what makes this cycle so complicated is that it is going to hinge on medicine. You know, it, it, like I said, in 08 and 09, okay, it uh, took a ring fencing around and a recapitalization of the banking system you can put in the lows. You know, back in 02, um, once we mopped up all the tech sector excess capacity, we established the lows. You know, I talked before about 1990-91 and the savings alone crisis. Well, once RTC was established 
to absorb all the commercial real estate mess, um, problem solved, move on to the next bull market. You know, no different than what do we have to wait for? Waiting for Paul Volcker to finally slay the inflation dragon in the late summer of 82. And so we can identify back then, okay, when these things happen, we're going to drive on. Yep. Um, this, is, uh, this is a lot trickier because we're talking about, this is the beauty about economics. Economics is a soft science, but it's still a science, and it's a social science. We are studying social behavior. We're studying an economy where 70% of it is consumer spending. So, you know, I'll just say that, you know, when, when you see surveys, like a survey came out by the Washington Post, University of Maryland, and it shows that to this day, you know, reopening or not reopening, 56% of consumers across the nation say they'll go to the supermarket, uh, but the rest say they're not going to. Only 33% of Americans today say they're comfortable entering a, re a retail store. Yeah. And of course, all the headlines are about how people are going to the pubs, so on and so forth. Well, I think you're going to get like an initial, you know, relief. Like I'm been cooped up in the house. There's going to be that sort of a, a bounce. But I don't think there's follow through. Uh, I mean, that same survey that I just talked about, that Washington Post survey said that 22% of Americans say that they're willing to dine in a sit-in restaurant. So... You know, the problem here is that if that's the case, a lot of companies are not going to survive. Their, their cash flows will not offset even their lower expenses. Um, so that's the big problem here uh, from that perspective is that until we get the vaccine, there's not going to be the level of confidence that's going to get enough people. I'm not going to say nobody, but enough people at the margin to keep these businesses intact. Yeah, people uh, mistake that you know what it takes to run a business isn't just nobody. You have to be at an occupancy level at a hotel, a casino, a restaurant that is well north of anything that's that's in those surveys at this point. Um, we we're running out of time here, so I just want to make sure I get um, at least this question in. Uh, a lot of questions about your gold views, uh, obviously, you know, Dave. So, you know, how do you think it can work from here? Well, uh, I think that I look at gold from this perspective. Um, it's a firstly a very good hedge against the instability that the extremes of deflation and inflation bring. So look, if you have a deflation view, which I do right now, interest rates remain lower, go negative. That makes the opportunity cost of holding gold nil. And then if there is inflation, gold will do very well as a store of value. And you have to believe that all this central bank alchemy is going to continue to lead to increasingly unstable markets. And I think the instability goes in both directions, and I think gold uh, does well against that backdrop. You know, the other part I would just say here, and I'd say maybe at this point gold is probably my highest conviction call, notwithstanding the pullback today. But we have to keep in mind, if for any other reason, is that gold is a currency that is no government's liability. Its production growth runs at a pretty reliable and constant 1% annual rate. Has anybody looked at the numbers right now in the U.S. for M1 and M2? M2 is running north of 20%. M1 is running north of 30%. Look, I'm telling you that we've already taken out the peak rate of growth of money creation in the United States. We've taken out the peaks in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, you've taken yeah, when we were watching Happy Days and, and listening to disco music, we've already taken out those peaks. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking a look at relative supply, the relative production function of gold against the relative production function of currency and circulation. And I'll tell you the best leading indicator, the best, and this, you know, we talk a lot about the Fed, Keith, actually the best leading indicator is the Bank of England. And it's the oldest central bank. And uh, they've already, were the first central bank to actually announce that they are undergoing outright debt monetization. They're not buying bonds in the secondary market. They're buying right from the government. And then over the weekend, the chief economist of the Bank of England openly contemplated going towards negative interest rates. And you, I know there's a big debate in the U.S. I know that the, the brass of the Fed says we'll never go there. Well, ne never say never. But I'd say that uh, the interest rate landscape alone 
uh, and the money creation alone is telling me that gold has got a long way to go before this bull market runs its course. Yeah, people when they um, when they say, well, it's, again, that that's the whole point on the Fed. Just because the Fed doesn't want, uh, or there's a debate about not ideally wanting negative interest rates, doesn't mean that the bond market can't take rates there. I mean, look at what the two-year yield's done in the last three months. Uh, again, it front-ran the Fed beautifully, and to me, that's actually what it's doing. Again, it's kind of an amazing thing to watch today. The two-year yield is probing its new cycle lows, and you know, gold's yeah, that's not that's not a correction. I mean, gold's been up like you know, it was up two and a half percent last week alone. Um, so that's yeah, that's a good answer. I think a lot of people struggle with that. And maybe just to finish up here, Dave, and I wish I, I had more time, and we'd love to have you on again. It's been a, a great conversation. Um, you know, like a lot of people struggle, uh, if only because just like you said, like people are dogmatically just stock people, or they're just bond people, or they're just gold people. They have a hard time doing it all together. You know, so when they start to think about this. They, they might get in a wedge where, well, I can't be long, how, do I, how am I long gold with deflation and, and also inflation? I thought it was one or the other. I think they completely miss what stagflation actually means if you have that reflation of the former deflation. How do you think about that? Yeah, well, look, uh, I, I think that stagflation, which means permanently slower growth, which I think we have to expect that we're going to go through years of very weak productivity, and let's face it, uh, bloated government deficits, more government uh, intervention and regulation, uh, a reduction in global supply chains, uh, and uh, just a generally higher cost structure. I think it stands to reason that once demand does stabilize, the aggregate supply curve is going to be so sclerotic that we're going to end up with a, um, a at least a mild form of stagflation. Well, real assets, real assets, not financial assets, real assets will do well in that environment. The reason why gold will do well is because of the correlation between gold and real interest rates. Because even as inflation goes up in the future, the central banks are going to keep a cap on interest rates out the curve. So that tells you that real interest rates are going to go increasingly negative. There's a 90% correlation between real interest rates and gold. Um, there's no such thing in this business as a no-brainer, okay? I don't believe in zero or 100. I don't. I, I believe that uh, there's always a range of outcomes. You have to pick your base case scenario. But what I will say to the listeners on the phone uh, who's dialed in is to go and take a look at the San France Fed report that was published just over a month ago that was titled longer-run economic consequences of pandemics, okay? This is a long-term cycle, and how it was caused is immaterial. The economists of the San Fran Fed, who I tip my hat, they typically produce the best research, okay? They went back and studied 15 pandemics dating back to the 14th century. And here's the major finding. The major finding is point number one, a secular shift towards greater precautionary savings. Right there, that tells me that there is no V-shaped recovery. At the same time, investment demand tends to decline, which means that productivity growth is going to remain very weak. Actually, the report, looking at these great historical pandemics of the last millennium, shows that the neutral rate of interest goes down 150 basis points. When we went into this, close to zero. So that's why you're 100% right. Even negative nominal bond yields that we've seen overseas, they cannot be ruled out. And I will say that that alone will drive the gold price up to new highs. And I'll tell you exactly, Keith, when the bull market in gold is over, I'll tell you exactly the day that's going to happen. is the day that Rosenberg changes his name to Goldberg. You'll know it's all the price. <laughs> well, there's a great way to end it. You know, we, we started with... Uh, I think it was the non-bearish chief economist. So now we're going to end it with the most bullish chief economist on both gold and uh, and on treasuries. That, that was great. Thanks for thanks for making the time. I know I kept you a couple minutes uh, longer than, than we thought we'd be, but I'm sure everybody appreciates that, too. It was great, Keith. Great being on. Look forward to doing it again. Awesome. Uh, if you want to follow him on, on Twitter, Rosie's handle, EconGuyRosie. You can follow him. Uh, as you can tell, he, he definitely has his convictions and makes his calls. And I'm Keith McCullough. I'll still be on Twitter, too. Thanks for, thanks for joining us.
Thanks for listening to our podcast. As a reminder, new Hedgeye subscribers may qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.